not too fired up. So we're going to start with a word of prayer. Amen? Yeah, that's right. Let's, let's go God in a word of prayer. Father, uh, God, we're very grateful to be here this morning. God, your sun was so bright and so warming. And Father, we just are grateful to be here together as your family. And Father, we want to be the sons and daughters you've called us to be. And I really pray for this time as we dig into your scriptures, God, that your word will move us in a great way, Father. That we will humbly take notes. That we will take your passage, these passages, and we'll take them home, and we'll study them out, and we'll make them personal. Uh, Father, I do pray for a radical change in the church, God. I know that uh, even on our best of days, we, we, we still could be seen as a disappointment, Father. It's, we got so many areas that we need to grow in, Father, and it's, I think it's okay that we admit that, God, and I really pray that we will see us the way that you see us, God, and, and we will humbly accept your grace, but at the same time, God, help us be real about what's going on in our hearts, and uh, God, I just know that you have great plans for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, to give us a great hope in the future as we provide a hope of a true gospel for this great city in Seattle. Father, we love you. We pray for the other service today. Yeah. We pray for Terry that he'll be fired up and ready for his baptism. Yeah. Uh, God, please work in a great way in the singles ministry and the marriage ministry. Amen. Father, it's great to be here all together. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. 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 Well, uh, 2018 has been the year of grace. Yes. Yeah. Have you learned a lot about the grace of God this year? Oh, yeah. Amen. You know, you need grace when you're falling short. You need grace when things are going good. We just are always in the need of grace. Amen? Amen. You know, uh, if there's anything that that I've learned this year, I took the first few months of the year to study grace out. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that grace is not what I thought it was. I mean, I, I, I grew up with this mindset that grace is this unmerited favor, that we've done nothing, we deserve nothing, and therefore God gives us grace. But... The reality is it's not what you think. And that's the title of our message this morning. Saving grace is not what you think. It's not what you think. You know, back in, uh, back in the day, there were these, uh, these hikers that went up into the mountains and they, and they found this spring of water. And one of the guys wasn't feeling so good, so they all got in the spring of water. And what they found over a short period of time is that it had healing properties. And so every now and again, they'd go back up to the spring and they'd bring some of their friends. And if anyone needed healing of their aches or healing in any way, they would bring them to the spring. And the spring would just rejuvenate them. They would say restore and refresh their soul. And they realized they could actually probably make a profit on this. So they set up a little, uh, a little cabin there. And, and that cabin turned into a home. And eventually... An entire town sprang up around this spring. And this town grew over time to about 20,000 people in population. And many of the people had forgotten that there even was a spring in the first place. And one day, uh, after about an entire generation had gone by, a guy shows up and goes, Hey, uh, I've, I've heard that there's a spring for healing in this town. Where is it? And people are saying, Well... What are you talking about? What, what spring? We haven't heard that there's a spring. And so he goes around from house to house, and finally found, he finds this older guy. He's one of the original wow. men who found the, the spring in the first place. And he goes, would you please bring me to the spring I ate? And so he goes, and he goes to the spring, and it still had the healing properties, and he gets healed. And this was a reminder for the, 
for the man that, hey, the whole reason we built this town in the first place was to give people a source of healing whenever they needed it. And so they started spreading the word. And what they had realized is that so many people who had been aching continued to ache. Sicknesses had continued to get worse. People died far earlier than they had to die because they didn't know anything about the spring. And you know, I think sometimes we can forget why we started doing what we're doing in the first place. And we forget about the spring that even got us here in the first place. And I think if we're not careful, we are in danger of living day by day and forgetting the spring of life that God has given us through the scriptures and through this saving grace. I mean, if you're to think about it, we are all here by the grace of God. And we don't often think back to who we used to be. But it's a good reminder, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a good reminder to think about who you were when you were called so that you can be even more grateful mm-hmm. for the grace and the healing that God's provided you through the Holy Spirit and through His Scriptures. Yeah. You know, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, <laughs> He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We are here by God's grace. You know, this doesn't say right here that because of God's grace, now we don't have to do anything. It's saying quite the opposite. Because of God's grace, now we want to do good for God and for His people. In fact, in Titus, eight different times, Paul says, we need to do good. In chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 8, and 3, 14. In fact, in verse 14 of chapter 3, it tells us that when we do good, it eventually leads to us being productive and us being fruitful in our relationship with God. It is the grace of God that gets us to where we're at. But then it's up to us to do good as disciples, to do, to do good, to do our best, yeah. so that we can be productive yeah. and fruitful with our discipleship, yeah. instead of growing stale and old and unproductive yeah. in our walk with God. Yeah. You know, God's grace is not what you think. Right. It's not unmerited. No, God promised, if you do this, then I will give you grace. It, it is merited in that degree. It is merited in that degree. But I'll tell you what it is. It's unfair. God's grace is unfair. It's unfair to God. It's unexplainable because in no way in our our little softball-sized brains of ours can we comprehend why God, the, the, the creator, the perfect, good, amazing creator of the universe would care so much about us to give us his grace in the first place. It's unexplainable. It's unequal. It's just not right. To think about what we give up to gain the grace of God, it's just unequal. And it's in our favor. So what is it that we must do to gain this grace? Because don't don't get it twisted. You must do something to gain this grace. If it were unmerited, then God would just save the whole world right now without anybody doing anything or believing anything. So what is it that we got to do? Look over in Luke chapter 14. We're going to spend the majority of our time today setting out Luke chapter 14. Nice. Nice. 
You know, as we said last week, I'm, I'm really excited because over the next five weeks or so, we're really going to dig into the hearts of all the disciples in the church. Amen. Because we don't want to grow stale or stagnant in our walk with God in any way. Right. We want to be fruitful. We want to be productive. That's why you're here. This isn't just some social club. This isn't, these aren't just a, a couple of neighbors coming together to have a good time and eat some donuts. <laughs> we're here because we want to do great things for God. Yeah. Aren't you here because you want to do Amen. great things for God? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. We're here because we want to be productive with our lives. We want to yeah. have an impact with our lives. In Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a, a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At that time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who he had invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please, excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out into the roads and the country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Mm-hmm. Of course, a few days ago we celebrated um, Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I know I've heard people uh, a turkey and ham. I know for us we had some turducken. It was amazing. Thank you, James. Well, if you don't know what that is, it's literally a chicken stuffed in a duck, stuffed in a turkey. And you slice straight through it as if it were a ham. And so you got these three layers of meat. It was just so delicious. And it was Cajun style. And uh, it was just so delicious. Uh, he had smoked it. I mean, it just couldn't have been any better. Uh, I told him this morning, I said, you know, James, thanks a lot, but now I got enemies because everyone asked me for the leftover and I said I didn't have any leftovers. <laughs> How did you not get any leftovers? I, James took them all. Oh. Oh. I, I, I certainly don't blame him. I, I certainly don't blame him. You know, I don't know if there's going to be turduckins at God's great banquet, but I, I, I tell you what, it's going to be the most amazing experience you've ever imagined beyond what you can imagine. We're not going to study this out. I mean, you can read this on your own. There's lots of sermons about this. It's a pretty easy passage to figure out. And if you haven't studied it out before, spoiler alert, the great banquet is heaven. The certain man is the preparer. This is the creator. This is God. The servant really can be anyone that spreads the good news to invite people to the, to the kingdom. 
Those who are invited, well, this is everybody. Right. Yes, everybody. Yeah. Even the people that have never heard of Jesus, they've been invited. They have a conscience in their heart, and they're called to live by that. And every man is without excuse. And so everyone gets the invite, but we need to talk about one more thing. Sorry, the excuses. Mm. Come on. I mean, these excuses. I mean, what are the excuses? These are real. Mm-hmm. People make excuses yeah. all the time. They're looking for excuses. They don't want to do stuff that they don't want to do. And so they come up with excuses. These are real. These, these are not necessarily excuses that can be paralleled into you know, different areas of your life. Like, no, just flat out excuses. People don't want to go to heaven. You go, well, that just sounds preposterous. What do you mean they don't want to go to Of course everybody wants to go to heaven. Not everyone wants to go to heaven. Why not? Because they think that it would be too expensive to go to heaven. There's stuff that they don't want to give up here on earth because heaven just wouldn't be worth it. Mm. Believe it or not, I've signed time with people who are so hard-hearted. They said, hell's probably not all that bad. (coughs) Believe it or not, people don't want to go to heaven. They don't want to pay the cost. You know, the cost is really, I think, what we need to talk about today. Because the cost to get to heaven is not just a one-time charge. It's a lifestyle you commit yourself to. It's a heart of devotion you commit yourself to. It's a cost that never ends. You pay this cost till the day you die. You see, this grace, this this is not unmerited, but it is unfair. In your favor. God has made heaven so incredibly amazing that you can't even fathom how awesome it's going to be. You know, a lot of people, they struggle with that. They actually think, well, heaven, I can't imagine it, so it must not be all that awesome. I actually get even more joy out of the fact that I can't imagine what it's like. Because I can imagine some pretty cool stuff. (laughs) And I can imagine heaven being a pretty cool place. I mean, growing up, I, I heard I got my own room. And I used to imagine, you know, a giant king-size bed with a basketball court and, a, you know, all this kind of stuff. A, a, a Jetsons kind of, you know, walkthrough as I go through my shower. You kind of roll out of bed and, you know, I just kind of stick my arms out and some machine takes my clothes off, washes me, puts new clothes back on. Have you ever seen the Jetsons? Yeah. You know, I, I, I just had this, this whole imagination of what my room in heaven would be like. And you've probably done the same. And I think it's a healthy thing to do. But isn't it encouraging to know it's going to be even better than that? Yeah. I mean, God knows the intricacies of your heart. He knows your deepest desires. And he's prepared a room just for you. I mean, he knows you better than you know yourself. And so he's got this entire plan laid out for you. But you've got to pay the cost. It doesn't come (coughs) free of charge. You know, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is trying to convert this rich young man and and the rich young man's having a hard time giving up what he has. And Jesus says, listen, if, if, you, guys, if you guys give up some, some things here on earth, trust me, you're going to get 100 times as much yeah. in this present age. Yeah. Yeah. In this present age. Yeah. Right. You're not going to get the 100 times as much in heaven. No, right now. Whatever you give up here on earth, you get 100 times as much right now. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is the Bible. This is the spiritual truth. Right. That happens to everyone that commits themselves to following Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we oftentimes look into the religious world and we go, well, look at the things that they're doing. 
we shouldn't be doing those things. But there are actually some things in the religious world that we need to learn from. Down in Argentina, there are some Pentecostal churches. And in order to become a member of their church, and I don't know exactly what they're teaching as far as doctrine or baptism or things like that, but what I do know is that they're, they're baptizing people. And when you get baptized, you actually go to the leader of the church and you give them the deed of your house. Oh. And you start to re- renounce everything that you own and give it to the church. Wow. I mean, this is radical. Yeah. But that's 21% or that's first century Christianity. Mm. And you bring you whatever you have now goes to the church. And you give it to the church, and you let the church decide. And so when functions are held in this church in Argentina, they don't have to ask people, like, hey, uh, can you host five people? It's more like, hey, uh, we're going to have five people stay at your house. Or, hey, we're going to have ten people stay here. Hey, there's a need over here. We're going to use this to go take care of this need. But in the same way, you get the same thing back. So no one ever worries about getting their needs met because everything is everybody's all the time. I mean, maybe we should restore first century Christianity. I mean, this is how radical they were. You get a hundred times as much in this present age. I mean, I love my in-laws. I love being here. This is my home as much as it's theirs. And my home is as much as... as I mean, you come to my house, you're not going to find as much food in the refrigerator or things in the pantry, but you're more than welcome. And that's the family of God. And that's the plan of God that... That we are family and we do cooperate <laughs> as a family. Yeah. We get a hundred times as much in this present age. So if you need any turd ducking, just go to James' house this afternoon and <laughs> see if there are any leftovers. <laughs> but you know, every banquet has a cost, doesn't it? I mean, even potlucks, you got to bring something. Every banquet costs you something. And so we're going to talk about three costs this morning. Come on. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Cost number one, an unrivaled love. An unrivaled love. You know, God wants you to love him more than anybody else. And, you know, believe it or not, we can idolize people. We can idolize our children. We can idolize our spouses. We can idolize... Uh, uh, family members that have passed away. You can you can idolize people when when you've allowed people to influence you and in your decisions more than the power of God through the Holy Scriptures. Those people are in danger of becoming your idols, mm-hmm. and you never want to make somebody your idol because God always smashes idols. Right. And so God wants this unrivaled love, this this incomparable love to anybody else. He wants to be loved above everybody else. And, and, and a lot of people make the mistake of, well, that means i got to love these people less. The Bible never says love anybody less. Yeah. It just says you've got to love God that much more. That's right. I yeah. mean, that deep love and affection you have for your children, you have for your grandma, you have for each other, that's great. Don't lower that. Right. But you've got to love that much. you got to love God that much more. True. You've got to study his word that much more, pray to him that much more, talk to him that much more, hate your sin that much more. You guys with me here? Yeah. You know, yesterday was amazing. After two years of pure dating, no kissing, no funny business, Danny proposes to Sierra. Now, now people hear that and they're just blown away. Oh my gosh, what do you mean they didn't kiss for two years? 
Because Danny and Sierra equally have an unrivaled love for God. No person do they love more than they love God. And so they will never compromise their love for God for the sake of a person, even each other. Even each other. And that's got to be our love, our deepest love and appreciation for God. Look over in Matthew chapter 5. Come on, Joel. You know, Matthew 5, Jesus tells us a little secret of his kingdom right here. Okay. And it's a good one for us to know because I think at the end of the day, we, we want these scriptures to apply to our lives. Yeah. And Jesus says here, the Sermon on the Mount, right in the very beginning of his sermon, in verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who inherits the kingdom? It's the poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit. And, and, and this is a reference to a physical poverty that can be paralleled spiritually. I mean, so poor, defined by the fact that you have nothing, nor the ability to get anything. I've seen people this poor. I've seen these people in Santiago. I've seen these people in Mexico City. I've seen these people in Manila. I've seen these people in Abidjan. There are people that are so poor, they have nothing nor the ability to get anything. I've never seen one of these people in America. In all my 31 years of life, I've never seen someone that poor in America. Because even on your worst of days, the government will take care of you. Even on your worst of days, the government will give you food if you have no food. The government will give you money if you have no money. The government will give you a place to stay if you have nowhere to stay. This, these scriptures don't apply to Americans. Believe it or not, these scriptures do not apply to Americans. But they do apply to people in places like Abobo. When I went to Abidjan in 2015, we traveled outside of the city about two hours. And I thought Abidjan was poor. And we traveled about two hours to a place called Abobo. And literally, it was a, a, a village that some people felt really bad for these people. And so they they just built frames and, and filled it with cement. And so the, the village is a, a cement town. And there, it's loaded with children. Um, there's tons and tons and tons of children everywhere, very few adults. And these people have nothing nor the ability to get anything. They, they need to be provided for, otherwise they die. And that's just how it is. Um, I was, I was with, we were with a, a disciple, Blaise Pumba, who was a tour, was giving us a little tour of the, of the area. And I said, Blaise, how many of these children, uh, you know, make it out of here? Mm-hmm. And he said, make it out of here. 25% of these kids are going to die by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were in June. Mm-hmm. He says, that's, that's what happens to these people. They don't have parents. They don't have aunts and uncles. The government does nothing for them. These, these adults running around, these are volunteers from neighboring villages. They just, they want to they try to help. These, these people have nothing nor the ability to get anything. And I asked our brother Kunin, I said, have you, have you been there? He said, oh yeah, I live there. Oh wow. He knows what it's like to have nothing, to be poor. And the reality is, guys, unless we become like that spiritually, we do not get to go to heaven. Right. Our, our lifelong greatest dream needs to become poor in spirit. Um, 
to become poor in spirit. To get to a place where you go, I am nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing. No good I do is going to be anything compared to what God expects of me. The Bible says that the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. And we, we walk around and we don't even realize how prideful we are, how greedy we are, how selfish we are. Far from poor in spirit. You know, next year is going to be a great opportunity. There's, there's no global leadership conference. And I want to encourage you to, to set your heart, set your mind and your finances to figure out a way to go to one of these third world countries, to, to see one of these conferences in another country, to, to experience what that's like. Because this could be a salvation issue for you long term. <laughs> but unless we become poor in spirit, we don't have a chance. This needs to be our greatest dream and passion to become nothing. In the eyes of God. You know there's one thing that God can't do? Look over in, in Luke chapter 14. You know, we've, we've heard the phrase, God can do anything. Well, you know, there's, there's one thing God cannot do. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 27, it says, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know, Jesus calls all of his followers... To be dead to self. To die to who they really are. To die to their deepest desires. And to die to the selfishness. To die to the arrogance. To die to the wealth. To die to who we are. You know the one thing that God can't do? God cannot fill up a full cup. God cannot fill up a full cup. And it's up to us to empty ourselves of ourselves so Jesus can fill us with himself. And we teach a false doctrine. And don't get it twisted. We teach a false doctrine in America where we go up to people and we say, listen, you, you got your life in order. You got a job. You got money. You got a wife. You got dreams. You got aspiration. You got talent. You are awesome. You're just missing one thing. We got to get the cherry on top. You got to add Jesus into your life. Amen. It's a false doctrine. <laughs> you can't add Jesus to a full cup. Come on. No, the reality is we need to empty ourselves if we're going to get full of Jesus. And it's only by the grace of God that that happens. But no, it's not that we just add Jesus to our life. No, you've got to become nothing in order to even have Jesus in your life. The second cost we're going to talk about here is an unceasing dying. An unceasing dying. You go, well, I did die to myself. I got baptized. I did die to myself. I changed my attitude. I remember that one day. Remember that when I changed. But it's unceasing. Yeah. It needs to happen that day, and the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and the next year. And every day we become more and more and more dead. Yeah. <laughs> That's the heart. We become more and more dead. You get cut off in the world, and little by little, the. The, 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 the you that you had flowing through your veins just starts to dry up and you just get deader and deader. And I looked it up. That's actually a real word. Deader is a real word. I mean, you know, the wood that burns the best is the deadest wood. We talk about letting our light shine. We talk about being used by God. We want to be... We have the fire of God in our bones, like Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 20. That's who we want to be. We want our light to shine bright and to, dry, to, 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 
to shine far. That's who we want to be. But the answer is you got to die to yourself. And you got to stay to yourself. And you got to die even more every day. And that's the heart of Jesus. You guys with me here? I mean, this is convicting stuff. I'm preaching to myself right here. That's who we got to be. You know, the best, the best wood, the best wood to use for a torch is pine because it's soft, because it's soft and it dries out quickly. It's soft and it dries out quickly. We got to be like the pine torch. You know what I'm talking about? The pine torch. We got to get, be soft hearted, not the hardwood. Now the hardwood, it's going to, it's going to burn for a very long time, but we, we, we don't care about living forever. That's not really our goal. We, we just want to burn the best and the brightest for God. Yeah, we got to be soft. We got to be dead to ourselves so that God can use us in a great way. You know, I heard a story this last week, actually, of this, uh, this missionary guy. He was from uh, southwestern Washington, believe it or not. And I don't know what church he was in or what he was teaching or anything, but he traveled to India to be a missionary over there. And there's this little island off of India, actually a group of islands called uh, the Andaman Islands. And he, he decided to go to one of the islands that's still very indigenous, and these people have been shooting arrows and throwing spears at helicopters and boats for a long time. And if your boat drifts onto the shore, they're going to kill you. I mean, these, they want to be left alone. There's about 2,500 people there or so, or 250 people there or so. And so this, this, this young guy, 26 years old, he goes, you know what? I want to share the gospel with these people. And he gets on a kayak and he, he goes on a fishing boat. He gets kind of close, but then he gets on a kayak and he's kind of dodging the, uh, the, the, uh, the Indian, you know, Coast Guard that's, that's trying to protect the island, to keep people away from it. And he makes it all the way to the island. And he's got all he's got is his Bible in hand. And he's, he's going around and he, and he finds the little village. He says there's about 250 people there. Uh, every hut has about 10 people or so. And his, his intention is to go and share the gospel. He gets kind of close and a boy comes running out of the woods, a little boy, and he starts screaming really high-pitched noises, is what he said in his diary. And he shoots an arrow at this young missionary guy. And he blocks it with his Bible. And he oh runs God. to the shore, jumps in the water, swims to the fishing boat. He stays there overnight. And the next day, he gets the gall to go back to the island. And he, he wrote some things in his, in his diary that night. And one of the things he wrote is, in all caps, I don't want to die. But these people need to hear the gospel. So he goes back to shore, and again, he's going to share the gospel with these people. When the fisherman comes around the bend, all he sees is the indigenous people dragging his body along the beach and then burying him in the sand that killed him. And I thought, you know, it's a sad story, um, but his boldness is to be commended. I mean, can you believe that people are already getting to the ends of the earth. Can you believe that? I mean, I, I don't know what he was teaching. I don't know what the doctrine was that he was going to share with these people. Nowadays, it could have been anything. Yeah. Chances are, it probably wasn't a true doctrine in, at all. But somebody's got the boldness to go to these indigenous people, one of the few places left on earth untouched by society. And he wants to share the gospel with them. And yet that's what God's calling us to do. 
with the true gospel. How much, how much more bold should we be with the true gospel? Yeah. To share it with these people. To go to an island of indigenous people and share. I mean, one of you guys, someone, some disciples someday is going to have to make their way onto that island and share their faith with those people. Yeah. I mean, for us to claim we now evangelize the world, someone's got to go. It might be Eric. He could probably take a few more arrows than the rest of us. But somebody's got to go. Someone's got to go. Someone's got to die to themselves and go, you know what? I'm all dried up. I got nothing left. I am nothing. I can do nothing. I can say nothing without God. Send me. And that person's going to be the one used by God to evangelize the end of the earth. You with me here? Yeah. yeah. Look over in Ezekiel chapter 9. Now I want to show you a scary scripture. Some of you guys are going to have a problem with the scripture. Just remember, I didn't write it. I'm going to try to read it with a smile on my face so you don't get mad at me. But this is in the scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1. Then I heard him cry out in a loud voice. Bring the guards of the city here each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, and had a writing kit at his side, and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill, without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, ah, sovereign Lord. Are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel and this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice, they say. The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side, brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded. You know what the scriptures teach right here is that Ezekiel, the prophet of God, was to go around and take some sort of paint or whatever and make a mark on the foreheads of everyone who in the King James Version, it says, was sighing and crying, lamenting over the state of Israel, the state of the lack of spirituality amongst God's people. If they were brokenhearted about what was happening, 
He was to put, I don't know, maybe a check or an X on everyone's forehead and move on. And before you know it, he'll get through the whole city. And behind him are the guards carrying a sword, striking down everyone who doesn't get the mark. And Ezekiel finishes the job. He's left all alone. And the guards are still out killing. And all he can do is break down and cry. Oh my gosh, God, are you going to destroy everybody? I mean, that just shows us right there that there weren't a lot of marks being, being put on the people. Because the state of Israel was just so unspiritual. You know, I, I do believe that we need to be broken hearted about the state of the world. But I think if we're honest, I mean, are we really being the church that God calls us to be? I mean, collectively speaking, right? We're all going to have our weak moments. We're all going to be struggling here and there. And that's why we're in each other's lives, to help each other out, to encourage one another, to spur one another on towards loving good deeds. But are we really collectively around the world being the church that God's called us to be? I mean, the world hasn't been evangelized for over 2,000 years. Are we really being that church that God calls us to be? I mean, when are we going to be filled with a crying and a sign? Over the state of the church. When are we going to be filled with that same indignation as God? Brother, sister, what do you mean God doesn't see? What do you mean God doesn't hear? What do you mean? We got to be broken hearted. You know, there's a, a false doctrine. A false idea. That gets spread often. And, and the, the best word I can think of for it is Pollyanna. Which is an overly happy attitude. And we think that we should come around the kingdom and just be overly happy all the time. Mm. You know, you can rejoice always without being super duper happy all the time. Yeah. If I'm honest, I, I, I feel joyful. I feel close to God. I feel satisfied. I'm having great quiet times. It was awesome waking up early to go praying every day this week. It was awesome to get deep, deep Bible study this, this week. It was great to just walk with the Lord all week long. It was awesome. It, it was a great, great week for me. But I wouldn't say I'm, I'm over the top happy. Mm. I'm superlatively happy. I mean, in my heart, I have a satisfaction and a contentment in my walk with God that can be touched by no, nobody. Right. Nobody. No, no bad situation <laughs> would touch my, my blessedness. On, However, I'm not happy. I'm not over the top happy about where things are at. I, I think 2018 could have been a better year. Yeah. Right? I mean, let's be honest. I'm not, I'm not down about I don't feel regretful. I learned my lessons, but, but I, I look back and there was some reflection that had to happen. And I hope you've had a chance to reflect. But brothers especially, we got to get to that point where we can sigh and we can cry. And we got to get rid of this macho mentality and really sigh and cry in our relationship with God. You know, grace... Is not what we think. It, it doesn't just float around the world and touch every soul and make them overly happy. Grace, grace is, a, is a realization. Grace is a reality. Grace is not a feeling. It's not something that, that's tied uh, directly to your emotions. You don't just feel like overly joyful and happy. It's, it's not about that. It's, a, it's about reality. It's about a state of reality in our relationship with God. 
And, and we need to have a conviction about what grace really is and about what God is trying to do. I mean, some of you guys are listening to this, you go, wow, this is a really negative point. I'm, it's a negative point. I'm positive it's a negative point. I know it's a negative point. That's true. That's real. I mean, this is something that we do need to be broken about and stay broken about. I mean, we can get so caught up in what we want and what we think and how it affects us and... Yet, the Bible calls us to die to ourselves consistently, to empty ourselves of ourselves, so we can get full of Jesus. Jesus says, you got to carry your cross and follow me. No one's going to smile reading that verse right there. And that's okay, and that's normal, and that's the reality of what it takes to follow Jesus. We've got to be that single seed Jesus talks about in John 12 that falls and dies and multiplies. So God can use us. To bear much fruit. Cause number three. An unqualified renunciation of all things. Look over in Luke chapter 14. Come on, bro. I hope the word's speaking to you like it's been speaking to me. Oh, yeah. In Luke 14, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to complete it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You know, I'll be honest, this is the hardest scripture in the Bible for me to obey. And here's the challenge about this verse, is that we're constantly getting more. We're constantly getting more things, more friends, more dreams, more money. Therefore, this passage continues to have to be applied every single day. The more you get, the more you have to hand over back to God. I mean, we got to give up everything to follow Jesus. People give up everything for a lot of different reasons. People will give up everything to go to school across the country. They'll give up everything to chase some girl they met online. They'll give up everything for a number of different reasons. But, but the Bible calls us to give up everything for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Yeah. And that's got to be the heart that we have, not just to get into the waters of baptism, but that we got to keep as we continue to get closer and closer to the day when our Lord Jesus comes back. Yeah. You know, our everything is unfair compared to everything that God gives us. I mean, God wants to give us everything that that our heart desires. But it's unequaled. I mean, you could add up all of our everything at the same time, and it would not be even compared in any way to the grace that God gives just one of us. I mean, the grace that God gives us is so, so (coughs) awesome. I mean, this is is a, a continual state. Grace is merited, but it's unfair. And we've got to know that it's unfair to our favor. An unrivaled love. An unceasing dying. An unqualified renunciation of all things. This is how you get into the banquet. There's no other way around it. This, This is what Jesus was talking about. This is the cost of gaining God's grace. You know, for me... I'm excited to close out 2018. It was an amazing year. 
one of the greatest years of my life. I loved 2018. I don't know about you. I had an incredible time this year. It flew by a little too fast. But honestly, in my mind, I'm already in 2019. I mean, I'm planning for next year. I'm excited for next year. The calendar's done for next year. Like, I'm, I'm in next year already. I do want to have a great next few weeks, but, but I'm thinking about 2019 already. And I'm excited because this was the year of grace. 2019 is going to be the year of boldness. Wow. And I'm excited because our winter workshop, which is $40, is going to be themed great boldness. Nice. January 4th through 6th. And I hope we can all go. But this is going to be a time to dream and to scheme about the bold things that God can do through us as we go throughout 2019. We've got to love God with an unrivaled love, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, powerful prayers, deep Bible study, all year long. Amen? Amen. I mean, we've got to die to ourselves daily, get open about our sin. We've got to die more and more every day so that our light can shine bright and shine far and affect as many people as possible. We need to have this heart to give things up for God, knowing that he's going to give us so much more. In response to our sacrifice. So I'm excited. I'm excited for 2019 because we're going to die to ourselves. We're going to see God do incredible things in 2019. We're going to multiply ourselves. We're going to multiply our Bible talks. We're going to multiply the ministry. Multiply the church. Maybe, just maybe, we'll be at Laurelhurst every week next year. I mean, we're going to multiply. It's going to be incredible. I hope you get excited for the year of boldness. Let's remember that 2018, we learned a great lesson. That grace is not what we thought it was. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on.